Welcome to Inside Personal Growth Podcast. Deep dive with us as we unlock the secrets to personal development, empowering you to thrive. Here, growth isn't just a goal, it's a journey. Tune in, transform, and take your life to the next level by listening to just one of our podcasts. Hey, well, welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. Um, Gary, all my listeners know who I am, and I've done plenty of these podcast shows. Uh, But joining us today is Dr. Gary Sprouse, MD, Highway to Your Happy Place, A Roadmap to Less Stress. And I was just telling him that, you know, it seems like to a certain degree that stress is at a I don't want to say epidemic, but it, it seems like it. Good day to you, Gary. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having yeah. me on. Well, it's a pleasure having you on. And it's always a pleasure speaking with somebody that's talking about something that is just such a challenge today. And I'm going to let my listeners know a little bit about you. Um, he's born in 56. So <laughs> I was yeah. born in 54. He grew up in mid-Atlantic regions in a row house, his parents and four siblings. He started working in a newspaper boy. So did I at the age of 11. Yep, decided by the age of 13 he wanted to be a doctor. Um, And I'm going to skip forward because he didn't go from 13 to being a doctor, but then he attended George (laughs) Washington University, got his bachelor's degree, continues his studies at GWU for his medical school training where he graduated in the top 10%. Um, He set up his medical practice in the underserved areas of the eastern shore of Maryland. And during his years in practice, he worked hard to be relatable physician to thousands of patients. Uh, He has had a lot of stress throughout his years, and he's employed his own stress reducers, such as singing karaoke and plays and other things in his life to reduce that stress. And he wrote this book, most importantly, Um, And you can see some great pictures here because he wanted people to find their happy place. And he, he was dealing with so many patients that were dealing with so many, so much stress. So Gary, you know, look, you're, you are a successful physician. You saw many, many patients come in and they would tell their stories, whether you gave them 10 minutes or you gave them a half an hour. Uh, I know today with many of these programs, they don't want the physicians to give, give their patients too much time. Mm, uh, that's like for sure. And that's unfortunate um, because people do have a trusted doctor. They trust you um, and they open up to you. So why were you so compelled to write the highway to your happy place uh, so that you could help people with the stresses in their lives? Yeah, so I, I think that I'm like an old school physician because I still spend a lot of time with my patients. And that to me is the important part. One of the things that I said to my patients is like, look, I have the knowledge of a, of a physician, but I have the empathy of being a friend to you because I live in a small community. So the people that are my patients are my friends and my patients and my business associates. So as you, the more you get to know somebody, the more you can individualize the information that you have as a doctor. And I think over the years, my patients have really appreciated that. And then as I got some new insights into stress and where it comes from, and I was using that to help my patients in my own office, it really struck me that as I get older, and like I'm actually sort of semi-retired now, uh, that that other people in the world 
need this information. And the only way, I can't do it one-on-one in my office. I don't have enough appointment times. Uh, so this became a way to get to help other people, a bigger audience, basically. Well, you know, it, it did. And I think just like uh, this podcast now, you reach thousands of people through a podcast like this. And you're yeah. really wanting to make a bigger impact because you want people not only read a book, but practice some of the things that you uh, teach in the book. So how do you teach people to better stay in control of their reactions to stress? Um, how do you get them to understand what the stressors are uh, in their life? Because awareness is where it all starts, um, which is really one of your main points in your book. Yes. Yeah. Well, that, so the first thing I try to get patients to to realize is they don't have to resign themselves to being stressed out. I mean, too many of my patients come in and they're all stressed out. And if you say, well, okay, what can you do about it? You know, they have this learned helplessness, like, oh, there's nothing I can do about it. You know, there's a pandemic, there's a financial crisis, there's not enough money, there's my sickness or my, they feel like they're victims and they're helpless and there's not much they can do about it. So the first thing I have to do is convince them, no, 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 you don't have to live like that. There are other things that you can do so you don't have to be that stressed out. And then the second thing is you have to understand where your stresses are coming from. And that's what this book is about. So people get that they're stressed out. And there's books that are out there that say, hey, the top 100 stresses, losing your spouse, you know, losing your job, getting unhealthy. But they don't tell you why they're so stressful. And that's what I got out of this book is, hey, you know what? The majority of our stresses are because of the skills that we have. They're actually side effects to our skills. And when you see them as side effects to your skills, then your job is to keep the skill because that's what's made us successful as an organism and get rid of or at least reduce the side effect so that you can keep moving on. Well, look, you're known as a less stressed doctor. And I don't think uh, that people right off the bat will get this connection between the skill, the mm -hmm. human skill, uh, and the downside of that skill, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so speak with us in specifics. So you, you literally got a lot of people out there that saying skill. Well, what what skill is? Is my skill sure. coping with stress? I don't know how to cope with stress because I don't have that skill. Um, or is it something that I am very emotional and I react and I pop off? And so because of that, I get angry. And when I get angry, I get high blood pressure. And then that causes cortisol to be released into the system. Mm -hmm. And on and on and on. As you know, as a medical doctor, the effects of these things are a slow but steady culmination in somebody's life toward dis-ease. I call it dis-ease, mm -hmm. right? Sure. It's mm -hmm. because they're not at ease with these things that they're having issues. Explain, if you would, please. Sure. Okay. So I think where I'm going for this is actually even more uh, generic, right? So these are skills that all humans have, well, all humans that, that have a brain and a mind. Okay. So here's one of our skills. We have the ability to envision the future. So you and I have been talking for a couple of weeks about when this podcast was going to happen, and you sent me a an email half an hour ago going, hey, be ready in a half an hour. So that meant we were looking into the future. 
So that's a skill that humans have. So we can say, hey, there's a hurricane coming. There's global warming. What are you going to do if there's what happens in the pandemic? I mean, we all these things. How, do my, how am I going to have enough money to retire? What's going to happen after I go to college? Right. So we are always we spend a lot of our time envisioning the future. Amazing skill. I mean, it, it, it's allowing us to either bring good things in or avoid bad things. But the side effect is that you have to worry about it. And so what you see is many people are worried. And I I was just at church the other day and the minister said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Worry works because 90% of things that I worry about don't ever happen. And you're like, yay. (laughs) Yeah. But when I say to patients, tell me what worry is, they don't know. They just know that it feels bad and they know it has something to do. They just they come up with some definition. But if I say, okay, even if you come up with a definition, how would you change that? And they go, well, I don't know. So what you see is here's your skill envisioning the future that most people don't even recognize as a skill, but it's an amazing skill. Okay. And then the side effect is that you have to worry about it. And that makes people feel bad and there's nothing to make it stop. And that's where the problem comes in. So the stress of the stress is 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 about worrying about the future. Is it the dissonance that occurs between, let me ask you this. Um, you know, it's always been said that the uh, yesterday's a canceled check, tomorrow's a promissory note, right? Um, and the the many of the major Eastern teachers, like I've had Ram Dass on the show. He died a long time ago, but he was here. And, you know, his book was Be Here Now. Yes. Be here now. Right. So if my mind is always projecting to the future or living in the past, I'm constantly creating stress because I can't be here now. I'm not with Gary. I'm not here. I'm looking at something else I got to do. Right. Yeah, I would, I would that, disagree. Well, I would disagree with that. OK, here's why. OK, so be here now says give up your skill of being able to envision the future. Now I get what he's trying to say is keep your you know keep your focus on now, but we spend a, a fair amount of our time figuring out what we're going to do tomorrow, next week, next year, when I retire, when I get close to death, what's going to happen to my kids. We spend a, a lot of time, and there's a very good reason why we do that. One is because every organism is trying to keep its environment safe. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you're a snail, if you're a fish, if you're a dog, you're trying to keep your environment safe. It's what our sensory systems are set up to do. Check out to make sure there's nothing dangerous going on. Mm-hmm. The problem that humans have. So my I use my dog in the book. Right. So if like somebody just came to the door and she's barking and her fur standing up because she's like, oh, danger, danger, danger. Right. But as soon as we go, okay, it's okay, and the person walks away, and she can no longer sense that person because her sensory system doesn't go beyond, you know, our driveway. Well, then she goes back and she's laying on the carpet like she's a rug, right? Right. So for me, as a human, I have future, so I can go, okay, well, the guy came, but what would happen if he came with a gun? What would happen if, if you know, he came with it was something dangerous going on? Now I'm going, oh, no, what would this? What if I wasn't here? What if I couldn't get away? So now I start adding what ifs to the equation because my environment isn't just my house right this second. My environment is this house into the future. 
my environment now includes the whole earth. So you and I are learning about things going on in Ukraine and China in real time. I mean, we're watching bombs go off. We're seeing people get blown up and bleeding real time. So our environment isn't just where I can sense. It's now a whole world. And in fact, it's the whole universe because as we watch but our it, movies. But isn't the key, Gary, even though it is into the future and we have this ability as human beings to project and do it, you talk about in your book, this worry organizer. You speak about sure. writing our worries down and you speak about what you refer to as the worry organizer. Could you tell the listeners about the power of writing down our worries and sure. why you, you know, because look at this, you just gave a great example. You projected into the future various things that our mind can totally grasp and conceive, right? Yes. And I think somewhere in there you saw define the concept, right? Yes. Uh, commune a big hate about the concept. So what do you mean by that and how do we reduce the stressors and how would we use your worry organizer to right. get us uh, there? All right. So let's take worry, right? So I say to my patients, tell me what worry is. And they get this look on their face like, oh, yeah, yeah, I got this. I know this. And then when they try to do it, they get these very superficial definitions, which are not actionable, right? So in my book, what I say, here's worry. Worry is using our amazing skill of envisioning the future. Second thing is, in, is I mean, focusing on the bad things that can happen. And then the third thing, and this is where the trouble comes in, is having a fear reaction right now. So it so the worry organizer is a way to take some of the emotions out of it and make it more uh, uh, an intellectual exercise. Okay. So with the, so there's five categories to the organizer. The first one is what are you worried about? And I'll use one of my patients' example. So this lady came in who was 45 and she said, "I'm really worried that I'm going to get breast cancer." Okay. So that's category one. I'm worried mm -hmm. about getting breast cancer. Category two is well, why are you worried about it? And she said, well, I'm 45 and my sister had just got diagnosed with breast cancer. And 10 years ago, my mom had breast cancer. So I have this really strong family history. So my chance of getting breast cancer really high. And that's why I'm worried. So then the third category is, okay, well, how likely is it that you'll get breast cancer? And then the slash that is, it, how dangerous is it you get it? So when mm -hmm. I said to her, tell me how likely it is you're going to get breast cancer. And she said, 85%. And I go, well, if you got breast cancer, how likely would it be that you'd be die from it? And she said 85%. So here's no. this lady. Well, there's this lady who's basically <laughs> gave herself a, a death sentence. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. So what I said to her was now that it's been written down, I go, okay, when you go to the literature, your chance of getting breast cancer is 15%. And if you got breast cancer, your chance of dying would be 15%. And you could watch the weight go off her shoulders because she's like, oh, mean i'm not going to die of breast cancer and i'm like well not necessarily so you just reframed it and you said your chances of getting it are only 15 percent right well, i changed i changed it to a statistic i, I understand but you also reframed the yeah, whole yeah sure scenario. Well, i gave her new i gave her new statistics right 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 so then the fourth category is okay what can you do to not get it right so you know we made sure that she gets mammograms and we got a bracket gene and she does self-examinations and then the last category is, okay, well, what if hap what if you actually got breast cancer or what if you actually died from the breast cancer? What would you do if, right? And that's where most people spend their time anyway. And what they do, and this is where the problem comes in, is they have this fear reaction going on. 
And it goes on and on and on because there's nothing to stop it because they're what ifing themselves and they're having a fear response right now to right. a thought. Well, and the other thing too, Gary, and I think this is, I and I've seen this done by really skilled physicians like yourself. Even if she did believe that it was 85% and you couldn't convince her, you can have her reposition it that you have a 15% chance of not getting it. So why are you focusing on the 85% that you're going to get it, right? Yes. And, I, and I've seen really skilled physicians, no matter what position somebody's in, so you have a 15% chance of not getting it. So what can you do to change your life about the way you eat, exercise, programs, all the kind of things you can do to kind of prevent that? But your worry organizer is really good. It's in yeah. the book, folks. Yeah. Definitely get that. Um, you speak about guilt, the definition of guilt. Uh, and how can your can you help your patients and people listening today to reduce the amount of guilt that they carry in their life? It doesn't matter who it is. Everybody probably has some guilt about something they did. They wish they could have, would have, should have done it differently. It didn't work out that way. And the reality is, oftentimes they carry it around. Sure. They carry it around a long time. And yes. that guilt turns into almost like a growing seed of anxiety, depression, right? Mm -hmm. And in the in your case, stress, mm -hmm. which, it, which, as you said, can be, it can be deadly. It can Absolutely. be. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what are you doing to help patients with guilt? All right. So the first thing is, and this I, I've done a couple seminars where I talk about guilt. It's actually an interesting. So it's been men and women, right? So I go, tell me something that you felt guilty about. And the women were all like scribbling down like they were going crazy, right? And the men were all sitting in the room like, hmm, let me think about this. And it was like, wait, do guys not feel guilt? <laughs> so it turns out they do. They just don't say it as much, right? So guilt turns out you is, well, first off, so what I found was most of the women actually weren't. So guilt is I did something wrong. I broke a rule. Like I, I broke a law. I, you know, I killed somebody or I sped or I, what, you know, I broke a rule that you, you shouldn't break. Right. And so you have to differentiate that from regret and regret yeah. is I made a bad choice. So a lot of the women were feeling guilty because they didn't spend enough time with their kids. Well, that's really a, a regret, not a guilt, because they didn't break any rules. Not like they didn't spend any time with the kids. They just wanted to spend more. So what I found is a lot of times people are using the word guilt. And what they really are saying is they they regret it. They just had a, they made a different choice. But if you did something that you should feel guilty about, guilt is a tool that society uses to shape our behavior. We want people to feel guilty when they did something that breaks a rule. So if you go out and you rob somebody, we want you to feel guilty that you shouldn't do that. And the guilt is that negative sense, that shame that you should feel that you broke a rule. The problem you get into is the rules change for whatever group you're in. So in the book, well, I don't know if I said in the book, but like if, if, if I go to a, a medical meeting in Chicago and I kill a bunch of doctors, I'm not going to get, that's going to be called breaking the rules. If I'm a SEAL team and I go to Iraq and I kill somebody, I'm getting all kinds of medals. So what group you're in really matters because that's how the rules get set up. And the rules change depending on what group you're in. 
Mm-hmm. So the first thing I say to patients is figure out which group you're in before you start deciding whether you did something wrong or not. And then, and I'll, I'll go brief, but the real, the second thing is guilt is designed to change your behavior. You can't change what you did. If you rob somebody, you rob somebody. I can't go back and erase that. I mean, it happened. So feeling guilty was designed to change my behavior going forward. So if I go forward and I change my behavior and I don't rob anybody anymore, then guilt did what it was supposed to do. So then I don't need to keep feeling guilty. As long as I remember not to do that again, guilt's already done what it was supposed to do. And the third thing is, and and I talk about this in in forgiveness, and I read Dr. Tutu's book about forgiveness, and I thought it was excellent. I think everybody should read it. And I think you've talked about forgiveness in your podcast too. And it's like, it comes down to forgiving other people, but also forgiving yourself. And I yeah, find that's usually the hardest one to forgive. Yeah. Well, and I remember not this not that long ago, Marshall Goldsmith, one of the biggest coaches to executives around, um, talked about regret. And I remember this in particular because regret, actually holding on to something you regret, um, prevents you from achieving your potential. Sure. Okay. And so where people get caught, they get stuck, is, you know, the words we use to define things in our lives are so powerful, right? Mm-hmm. And as a physician, the words that you speak to your patients are so powerful and how you speak them, mm-hmm. uh, because that's how we uh, create our perception of the the situation is we are a human species. We love talking to other people. We like to tell our story. And we're most of the time looking for some kind of validation, right? Some kind yeah. of like, hey, it's a, it's a good story. And that brings me to this low self-esteem, okay? Because that's a problem that can start very young in life, okay? Very young in life. Mm, I agree. Um, and if it's already been programmed in, um, you say perspective, the prism plays a role in how we see the world. So if somebody came into your office with a high degree of low self-esteem, but let's say they had a lot of low self, their esteem was very low oh, Okay, and it was causing a tremendous amount of uh, stress, yeah, distress, yeah, right, uh, and distress uh-huh. as a result of carrying that. What simple words of wisdom would you tell them about self-esteem and why they should change their perspective about their low self-esteem? Okay, so the first thing, and you are absolutely correct, that our self-esteem meter gets started when we're born. So oh, we're yeah. already we're already taking information as we go along. And as as Bruce talks about, we're not real cognizant of what we're doing when we're a baby and when we're one and two and three. So information that's coming in, we're just taking it. That's true. And we go with it. So it's our program. Says, yeah, it's, it's our, our program. program. Right? Yeah. So by the time you're six, you already have a pretty good idea of what your self-scheme is going to be like because you've already taken in a fair amount of information and here's the problem. So this is where that perspective criticism comes in. So I think of it as a triangle, right? So this is where you store your, your beliefs, your facts, your experiences, your emotions, your, your, your conscious level at the time. So it sits in this prism, 
right? And information comes into the prism and it goes filters through the prism and it comes out as a perception. Mm-hmm. And the perception is what drives our emotions and our actions. So it doesn't really matter what the reality is because what's driving what we do is based on that, what comes through that prism and our perceptions. So perceptions are the, our reality. And so what I find is I can't fix your perception. I can't fix your emotion reaction. I can't fix your actions. What I can change is what's in your prism. So like what I was doing with that lady with the breast cancer in her prism was 85% chance I'm going to get breast cancer. So if I changed the fact in there and said, it's only 15%, well, her perception just changed. Right. And this is something I can do something about. So to me, this is where all psychology should work on and we should work on ourselves. Find out what's in our prism. Because that's what's, and I think Bruce was leading to that, is find out what's inside, what's in your programs, because that leads to all these other things. Yep. So self-esteem yep. becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you think of yourself as a bad person or not a good person, then information that comes in and says you are a good person gets filtered out because there's dissonance. And anything that comes in and says you're bad, you go, oh, I don't like that, but it fits. So you're literally ignoring anything that says you're good because it doesn't fit. So mm-hmm. you got to change what's in here. That well, it doesn't that. fit your story because that was the story yes, that you've been yes. carrying around. So, you know, if the story is around low self-esteem and I'm not good enough and I can't be enough and I'm never enough. I mean, it's always the enough tape yes. uh, from the ego that constantly plays. And unless you can uh, co-create with that, as Bruce Lipton says, you're not going to unplug the program. You're you you can't pull that seven the first seven years of your life yes, out right. and unplug it right. But what you can do is you can change your perception about it. Yes, well you can become aware of it. I think that's yeah. what he was trying to say. So two yeah. things that I say: there's two pieces to our self-esteem that aren't really self, right? So number one is our achievements. So a lot of psychologists try to get rid of achievements as part of your self-esteem, and I'm like, well that's a nice thought, but that doesn't the way it's not the way it works. Like when I do something good, I feel good about myself. When I do something bad, I feel bad. You can't ignore that happening, right? What I found is that people don't count their achievements. They just take them for granted. So I, that's what I say to patients. I woke up this morning, 10 points. I have food in my refrigerator, 10 points. I got running water, 10 points. My wife is safe, 10 points, right? I wake up and I got 50 points for waking up. Yay, and most people wake up and they get minus 10. They're like, ugh, another day, right? So if somebody comes along and says, hey, if you do this, you'll get 20 points. You're like, well, I'm at 50. What the heck? I'll go for 20. And if I lose, if I don't make it, I'll be 30. Well, all right. I can. But if you're at minus 10 and someone says, hey, here's 20 points. And you're like, oh, that would be up to 10. That would be impossible. Yeah, I think. And they're like, yeah, but if you don't do it, you'll be minus 20. And you're like, ugh. I think I'll just stick with my minus 10 and not even take the risk, right? Mm-hmm. So what I found is we we don't count our achievements. So we just kind of literally, I, I asked somebody to write down all their achievements during the day. And I said everything. And I meant like, I got in my car, my car started, my wife was alive, I was alive, I had food, I had work. They came back after one day and couldn't do it anymore because they had to write down so many things. They're like, forget, I can't do it. Right. <laughs> so we don't count enough of our achievements. And two, we give our we give our successes one point or zero, and we give our failures minus ten. Well, it's hard to keep up if you have three 
minus 10s, that means you have to have 30 pluses. Well, that's hard to keep up with. But if they're all 10, now they need three and I'm backed up to, right? So what I found was people don't count. Well, I think the fact that you don't score very accurately. The fact that you're scoring it and measuring it alone creates awareness. Yes. That's it. Most people don't have the awareness because they're not going to sit there and give themselves points for yes, that's you know, exactly right. in the positive things that are going on in life. What they are going to do is focus on the negative. That's what the yes. media sells, yes. right? And that brings me to this. It's it's a bit of a conundrum. Uh, not, I, and, and I would think for me, some of my listeners as well. So here's how I want to explain it. You speak about boredom and how we can control over our control it over directed awareness okay mm-hmm. um when you are bored versus totally enthusiastic about something if it's a stretch goal let's talk about that for a second and you have an incentive right because there's there's these two sides gary that are almost playing and you're saying directed awareness is what changes that, right? And what I want to find out from you is what you really believe by that. Um, because I think a, a, a show on personal growth is about having somebody stretch. People yeah. who are bored are not stretching for the most part. They're like, ah, it is the way it is. I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm bored, whatever it might be. People who are enthusiastic about life, Mm -hmm. living life, like you were just talking about the points. I'm counting my good points today. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's a great, great tool. What can you do with this directed awareness to help people get rid of the boredom and have some stretch goals? Okay. So first thing you have to understand that, well, here's the one. Boredom is bad. It's really bad. Like I, I sent it to one of my uh, friends who's a, a psychologist and she read that chapter. And she's like, oh my God, you're right. I didn't realize how bad boredom is. I was like, it's horrible. So, but there's three different kinds of boredom. So like if I put someone in solitary confinement to punish them, that's a lack of stimulation. And for humans, and that's our skills, we have, we're incredibly curious. As an organism, we're like the most curious organism in this out, out there. All right. So if you take away people's stimulation, it literally makes them go crazy when they don't have enough stimulation. That is not the problem for most people in this world. Most people have plenty of things to do. So the second thing, and this is probably the most common one, is they're in withdrawal. So they have a high, they have a certain level of stimulation, and then somebody changes that. So they go from New York City to Roanoke, Virginia, or whatever, right? Okay. So their level of stimulation was here, and now it's here. And when you take that level down, they literally have a withdrawal reaction, which we have labeled boredom. And so they really have stimulation. They just, it's different than where they were. And so they're going through withdrawal. And if they just give it some time, it'll get better. They just have to wait. And eventually, like I watched my sister, we moved from Pennsylvania in a suburb and we moved to this rural town in Maryland and she was bored for a while. And now she's you know, now you would never know that she didn't live in Southern Maryland. And if I took her back to a place that was busy and crazy like that, she would be overwhelmed because now she's reset her her meter of like, this is okay now. Mm-hmm. The third thing, and I think this is what you were talking about, is 
if you have a long-term goal, say you want to be a nurse or you want to be a doctor and it's a long-term goal, but you can then you're making decisions going, okay, well, I'm going to take this class. It's going to help me, or I'm not going to take this class or it's not going to hurt me. So I can take this class. Right. But then there's classes you have to take that you don't like at all. So like, if you're a nurse, you have to take a chemistry class or you have to take an algebra class. And you're like, what the heck is algebra going to do to make me a better nurse? And you're sitting there and you're not stimulated. You're bored. Is that the word we use, right? Because you just don't care. It's not helping you get somewhere. It's So why am I doing this, right? And that's where directed awareness can come in because you can say, hey, you know what? Like I'm going to use my curiosity because it's an amazing skill. And I'm just going to learn to learn. Because then it's like, now it's not just an impediment to my goal, it's now something I'm learning. And what I did, is I had I had taken some classes, I had taken some math class, right? And I took care of a patient who had had a stroke, who turned out was a math teacher. And he was really worried that he was going to lose his skills. Mm-hmm. And so when I came in and talked to him, and I we talked about chaos and complexity and some other math topics, and he could talk about it, you could see the light shine in him. And so even though I didn't know nearly as much as he knew, I knew enough that I could then communicate and empathize with him. And it made his life so much better. And what I found is knowledge can always be used somewhere along the line in a conversation at a dinner theater, you know, with a patient. There's always room to have more information that you can then use. And that's where your directed awareness comes in. And you can go, okay, I'm going to direct my awareness to learn something here. And instead of saying being bored and like, oh, why? Just go, hey, I'm just going to learn to learn because somewhere in my life, that information is going to help me. Well, it, it it also has to do, I think, whether I'm going to use your course example. Um, you have um, curiosity. We all have biases in our curiosity about what and what stimulates us. You know, mm-hmm. hey. Uh, some people out there may be interested, like me, I'm very interested in cycling. There's a lot of people that could care less about it. I own like five bikes, mm-hmm. right? And and you got to find something that kind of, as I'm going to say, floats your boat that you have a passion about, Sure. right? If you, yeah. if you have a passion about being an artist or a passion about being a doctor or a passion about anything, um, deep down inside, there's a motivation and an inspiration which is driving that. When you have curiosity and you have purpose and then you have uh, a vision and then you create goals and then you create proximal goals, right? The formula for that, starting with curiosity, going to purpose, having a vision, creating goals, and then having proximal goals is really quite an elixir. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You should write a book. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the point is, is that that's how you're going to reduce boredom, stress. All this stress really can come down to someone living a purpose. Live outside of yourself. Find some place to give uh, your time to. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and they say there's been studies done like this, like crazy on stress. If you went out and you donated your time to a charity, mm-hmm. they say, and gratitude, those two things are two of the biggest stress reducers around, right? And I think people get so into themselves that they don't see beyond that. And so that causes that. So look, you cover a lot of important ideas about reducing stress 
What are three important changes people could make in their lives to reduce stress? And I'm going to say, because the book is, and I'm going to hold it back up, find the happy place. Um, I think most people want to be in the happy place. Uh, today we've talked about regret and boredom and low self-esteem, and we've talked about worry. Um, how do people find this happy place, Gary? Well, first off, you have to know what it is. Cause when I say to people, I'm writing this book on how to have less stress they're like, Oh, okay. That'd be great. I need that book. And I go, but if you didn't have as much stress, where would you be? And they're like, I don't know. I never got that far. All I wanted to wear, have less stress. Right. So I had to realize where people need to be which is in their happy place and all these things that we talked about today are just things that keep them from being there so your happy place and includes the things you just talked about feeling fulfilled by learning and by giving you know uh having gratitude for the things that you have uh having pleasurable events occur uh being contented with what's going on in your life as it is and then anticipating pleasurable events because it turns out like my wife and I had the luxury of going to Germany for a couple of weeks, but we had months of thinking about, oh, isn't it going to be cool when we go to Germany? Months. The German trip only lasted two weeks, right? So the anticipation of the pleasurable event was way more impactful than the pleasurable event itself, right? So if you right. have those five things in mind, then you understand where your happy place is. Okay, now I can get there and I just got to get rid of this clutter that's keeping me from being there. So that's number one. Number two is I talk about lumping and I see this all the time. So a patient will come in and go, yeah, doc, I got this going on. And then this happened and my aunt, this and my son, dad, and my brother. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And what they do is they take one stress and add it and add it and add it. And they end up with this lump that's overwhelming. And they have no idea. It's like so overwhelmed. They don't even know where to get started. And right. I say, look, no one of those stresses is that bad. If you just keep them separate and the more separate you keep them, the less overwhelming and the less stress will become because now you can focus. Okay. Right now I'm going to focus on this and then like ignore these for right now. And now I'm going to put that one back and focus on this. And the more separate you keep these stresses and the less you let them lump in. So my friends now will call me and go, I'm lumping. I'm like, stop. <laughs> Don't lump. Right. <laughs> so well, I, my... I, I think, I think partly that's aggravated or it's uh, exacerbated Gary, I might say by, <laughs> uh, by our media, by our social media, by how quickly we get news, how quickly we're uh, supposed to be processing all of this. You know, I mean, look, you talk, Absolutely. you look at the wars, you look at the economy, you look at all these factors, you've got, so many of them. And you say lumping. And I think many people feel overwhelmed from yes. lumping, yes. from lumping, uh, because there is so much going on. That doesn't mean in times past there wasn't a lot going on. It just meant that we weren't getting instantaneous news about what was going on. Uh, today, it's in our face. It's on our phone. It's on our iPad. It's on our TV. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And um, that in itself, I think, uh, exacerbates stress. Uh, you hit on what I was going to say, right? Which is, it's not just the information, it's how it's presented. So yeah. we're a very visual organism, right? So we're 80% of what we of our information is visual, right? So when when people heard about a football player that punched his girlfriend, he got a two-game suspension. When they saw the video of him punching her in the face, then he never played football again, ever, 
right? Mm -hmm. So video visual is so much more impactful to us. And that's exactly what we're seeing in our phones, in our TVs is 24 seven visuals. And I think you said this earlier is that the media is showing us all the negative things that are going on. So they will, you know, take a, a mass murderer and play it for two weeks. And some guy who helped a hundred people, you know, gets a one minute snippet on the end of the news cycle. Right. And it's yeah. like, so um, like I say this, one of the answers would be, okay, if you're going to run an article that says uh, an airplane crashed and 300 people die, then in the same type size, right next to it should say a million people landed safely today. And if yeah. you have that comparison, then it's not going to be as stressful because you're in your brain, you're going to go, oh, well, that was really bad that 300 people died, but a million people landed safely. Oh, okay. So then you get I like your I like your analogy and I think it's wonderful other than the fact and I'll say other than the media sells news by putting all the negative and there is a gravitation as a human species toward looking at what's wrong not what's absolutely. right absolutely um, and that bias needs to shift in everybody to reduce their amount of stress because yep. if they weren't so curious about what was going wrong and they were more curious about what was happening right, just like you said, the million people that landed safely, they would uh, have a lot less stress in their life. <laughs> well, but here's the problem, right? Because what I said earlier was we're trying to keep our environment safe. So if I have 10 people in the room trying to give me a hundred dollars and I, I know we're one... looking for, we're looking for those things, well, those negative but that's... things. That's but that's how you keep your environment safe is you got to make sure because if I'm if there's a guy with a gun and I miss that, well, then I'm dead. So it doesn't matter if people give me a hundred dollars because I'm dead. Right. So I can miss positive things. But if I miss a negative thing, then I'm in trouble. So we tend to focus on the negatives, which is why we worry so much. We have. But you're right. It's a habit and we can shift that habit. We can change our habit. People stop smoking, well, and, people stop drinking. And, it's like and yeah. that'll come kind of bring me to the kind of the conclusion of this is that. It's something outside of ourselves. You talked about being in church and speaking and the minister was speaking. I think the, the whole mind, body, spirit element of this and spirit was, unfortunately, we left a little bit out about spirit. But if people have a belief bigger than themselves and whatever it might be, and I'm not saying that it's it's God or it's Allah or it's whoever it might be. The point is, is that if you have something that's holding you together, a truth about life that's bigger than you, uh, you have a lot less stress. They've already found people who have a spiritual practice have less stress in their life. Sure. Absolutely. I, right. Well, I mean, it comes down to a belief, right? So if you believe right. there's someone that's holding you together, it's going to hold you together. And like I see studies where they talk about prayer, helping people get through an illness. Right. And I, I, see, I see this, right? I see people in their bed that are by themselves and they're lonely and they're sad and they're sick and they don't have people coming to visit them. And it changes how they're how they view themselves and their illness. And then I see other people who have family members coming and they go, oh, yeah, the whole church prayed for you today. Well, when you feel that and you go, man, a whole church prayed for me today. Well, that yeah. makes you feel good, which then gives you a more positive hormonal experience which then makes you more likely to recover that's right and you're going to heal you're going to heal a lot quicker and your whole book really is about healing healing from this stress and 
Gary, I want to thank you for being on Inside Personal Growth and sharing some of your wisdom. And for my listeners, this is the book. And if you want to go to his website, you're going to go to the Less Stress Doc. That's the L-E-S-S-S-T-R-E-S-S-D-O-C.com. There you're going to find more about Gary. You're going to find more about the book, Addiction Treatments, uh, you can contact him. There's a store. You can join his mailing list. Uh, stress management. Uh, there's a section on that. He writes a, a blog in there and how to uh, about stress management. But Gary, it's been a pleasure having you on. This is a great opportunity for people to uh, change their perspective about stress. Yeah, this book. Absolutely. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. And I hope we help people today. I'm sure we did. If we didn't, all they got to do is listen to like two minutes of it and they'll be helped. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.